Okay, so I'm live on Obsessive Conversive podcast number 16 with my long-term friend, Croydon DeMello. How's it going, Croydon? Pretty good, Darren. How are you? I'm good. So um, what have you been up, up to since we uh, met about 20 years ago? Yeah, it was 20 years. I mean, um, if I think about it, it was probably the early 2000s, right? 2001, 2002? Some, somewhere around there, yeah. And for those who don't know, we met at summer camp. What happens at summer camp stays at summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you were a team leader back then, weren't you? I was, yeah. You know what I did? Um, every summer I used to apply to summer camps and I used to, you know, be, be the counselor at the yeah, camps. Yeah. And that was the first position I had where I was the unit leader slash team leader. Yeah. So yeah. I paid my dues and I, I finally got the, the gig, as it were. Yeah. So I, um, I sort of leapfrogged the the team leader because i was the sports counselor i think it was the sports counselor when you were there yeah and then the following two summers i was actually the assistant director yeah um so i was i essentially went away from spending my days messing around playing sports for kids to um being a manager and um yeah it was good experience um i i think i enjoyed the counseling more than the um the managing though because <laughs> you don't have the responsibility or yeah. the accountability, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what, what are you up to these days? These days? Wow. I mean, um, since, you know, 20 years. And, you know, just before we get into these days, I want to mention with that summer camp experience, because I've done a ton of summer camps. And, you know, for the people out there who are listening that were at the camp, you know, there were two people, uh, Jen and Peter, who set up this camp. And the direction for the camp was to house, you know, kids who were homeless from the state of New York in um, near Bear Mountain. So off uh, off Manhattan next to New Jersey. And they had sort of like this camping property set up with cabins. And what was really cool about it is that it was, a, I think, a three month contract you had to be there for. And rather than, you know, employ people who were local uh, from the U.S., they actually employed a variety of international students and adults. Um, and I thought that was really cool. I mean, they didn't have to do that. They could use, you know, they could have used the local employees, but the fact that they brought, you know, international people, that was amazing. I mean, you remember we had people from many countries from Canada, US, Mexico, England, you know, various parts of Europe. And, you know, some people didn't really speak English properly. So it's really great because you get to exercise meeting different cultures. And the fact that you're locked away for three months at a campground that has, you know, barely any electricity, you know, it's very rudimentary in terms of amenities and to sort of, you know, take away and like a step back from the world, meet all these people, meet these homeless kids where you're doing good things. It's a life-changing experience. And I'm really glad I did it. And the people I've got to meet, like, you know, we're friends forever kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange, cause uh, it was, it was sort of when the internet was still, kind of uh in its infancy as well wasn't it so what what was great one of the great things i should say about the whole uh camp wakanda experience was that you you had to be 
present all the time. There was no distractions. You, you like it's not for everybody, but being in the it's literally in the middle of nowhere, isn't it? I mean, it's crazy. You, you think just a few miles up the road is the busiest city in the world, and yeah. here you are in the woods um, with bears and all sorts of wild animals, um, snapping turtles in the in the lake. Um, and yeah, it's, I think I'm glad that I got to experience that because there's not many, there's not, there's not going to be much opportunity for that these days. I think, um, like if my daughter was to, you know, say to me that she wanted to go and do it, you know, the camps now would have full internet access. Um, so I mean, I, I I think I spoke to my mum two or three times that whole whole time I was I was over there, um, and it was it was a good good way of growing up if you know what I mean because I started going when I was like eighteen because I think I went the year before uh, you came as well, and you know I was eighteen I'd hardly travelled anywhere and if I had it had been with my parents. Now, all of a sudden, I'm sort of thrust into this environment. And I felt like I had a big part of um, my my initial adulthood was that you have to sort this out yourself, Darren. You know, you're in, starting off, you're landing in New York City. You've never been in an airport on your own before. Um, it's time to um, sort of man up, I suppose, and, uh, and get get to grips with what you have to do, and you have to do it. There's no help from anybody else. And... Um, and I also think that the the different experiences you have and you don't have the ability to Google something, you have to actually find out what it is. Do you know what I mean? Like the environment. I mean, how many how many of us got like weird skin ailments from just going wandering in the forest and all of a sudden your arms itching like mad and you, you don't know why. And then you have to find out that, oh, that was poison ivy that you, you were lay on and so, you know, the next time, you know, cause even over here in, in the UK, like you can go wander in the forest, nothing's going to hurt you. So, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no chance of running into a bear or anything like that. It's, it's just, it's just completely different. And yeah, it's, it's something romantic about it as well, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, you know, one of the counselors coming out of the cabin one morning with big googly eyes because a spider bit her, you know, <laughs> she didn't know she was allergic to this. Yeah. I mean, we had the resident doctor. Yeah, and um, like you know, we had one payphone. I remember using a calling card. Calling you know, card, call yeah. Family and the lads back home. Like you're saying, there was no Wi-Fi. This is pre-phone, so I don't yeah. even remember if I had a rudimentary cell phone or maybe a pager back in the day. And I don't know if you remember, but the year I was there, it was the year that uh, FIFA had their their game, right? And Germany was playing. I forget the team they might have been playing, but um, Peter, one of you know the owners of the camp. He was a big, you know, coming from Germany, a big fan of fan of the game. So I remember using that calling card to call one of my friends in Toronto and telling him to record the game on a VHS cassette yeah. tape. And he actually mailed that cassette tape over to camp. And then we got to watch the game at camp after the game was done. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I vaguely remember that because I think England played Portugal. Okay. I think, I th- I, I forget. It was so way back. Then. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I'm trying to, th- but yeah, I remember the V8. There was like the the TV room, wasn't there? Because <laughs> I watched. We all, you know, 
got together and and you know it was great because uh, in between rotations of the the camp kids that came we would get a chance to go out to the city and the city was proper manhattan yeah and i remember we were still you know in sort of camp mode and i remember one night instead of getting a hotel room just going to the waterfront and brooklyn and just sleeping there you know with my sleeping <laughs> bag pretending i was still at camp and you know my view was the you know the manhattan skyline right over there because the waterfront projects that yeah we'd go to the beach at i think it was brighton beach and just you know sleep at the beach in our sleeping bag and i remember coming back home to canada and we had a sort of get together with my friends and i found you know very strange that they all sat at the the table on the patio and actually sat on the ground because it was just natural for me after 3 months you know sitting on the ground everywhere <laughs> they yeah. looked at me like what's wrong with you <laughs> <laughs> Good yeah I, do, i i do remember um uh, sort of reacclimatizing when coming back it was it was always quite difficult i always needed a little bit of you know a few weeks to um sort of get used to normal life if you like because i think it it quite suited me living in the the middle of nowhere not um not really a big city fan anyway um i found that every time i went to the city um after like a day i felt like stressed because of the all the noise all the hustle bustle i i still get a bit like that if i ever go to places like london i'm good for like a day or two but after that it's like i'm ready to go back to quiet hereford now where yeah. Do you know what I mean I'm where I live now I'm like a 5 minute walk from the river um a a 10 minute drive from being in the woods it's it's um I think I'm more suited to the more rural lifestyle anyway but um it would it would make life a bit more interesting if in the woods there was the occasional bear or whatever but I'll I'll settle for um <laughs> I'll settle for the deer that you occasionally see <laughs> and you know I, I was the opposite because I came from the city of Toronto which is pure hustle and bustle and I didn't yeah. like camping at all. I remember my first camping experience. I didn't take a sleeping bag. I didn't take a blanket. I was sleeping, you know, in a cabin under spiders. You know, my my folks, my family, we weren't outdoors people, so they didn't tell me what to do. I had to go to the, you know, the office and get like spare blankets and you know, kits <laughs> and things like that. And I remember, you know, that experience um it really changed me because it taught me that you can take a time out from life you can take a time out from from the hustle and bustle and you look at you know a lot of great people i was watching this uh, podcast the other day with uh, tim ferris and mark randolph who's you yeah. know the early founder of netflix mm-hmm. and he was saying one of his you know primary uh, sort of training periods was going to you know camp for a couple of weeks and they were um, it was sort of like a leadership camp and you know you had to um, be have responsibility take the accountability you were just thrown in there and then you were picked up and that's where you you know you learn your your skills right that's where he learned his skills as a leader and you know taking that time out you get to reflect i know for um there's a meditation center by sn goinka he set up about maybe five of them i think in the world and we're lucky to have one in uh, in canada in ontario and i haven't been there but it's uh, a 10 day meditation retreat and it's a silent meditation it's fully vegetarian so the moment you go there you surrender your phone and there's no talking during the whole day and even when you go back to your quarters you're not allowed to communicate or talk with anyone it's just you and yourself you know and um i hear a lot of great people like ceos you know who are performing at the highest level 
like they go to these retreats, like that's the first thing they book in their calendar because you need that time out from life, right? Just to reflect mm-hmm. and so you can step back in the game. Yeah, I, th- I, I think at the beginning of this pandemic, I remember that um, Jared Leno was um, at one of those silent retreats, which that must have been so weird. Do you know I mean, no communication with the outside world. You've literally just been spending time with your thoughts and you come out and everything's locked down. That must have been so surreal because even though probably when he went in, there was whispers of this, this virus that was coming out of China. Like no one, I mean, even this time last year, um, nobody would have thought that it had got to this point. I mean, in the UK, we're still in lockdown until April the 12th. The kids have only just gone back to school. Like, like, I feel sorry for the kids that have just started, like, just started high school last year, like uh, that are around my daughter's age. There, she's go, she's going into the final part of her second year, and she's only spent about six months at school. Yeah. So she's missed out on such a, a huge learning curve in terms of socially. I mean, academically, I don't think it'll affect that many kids. I think they've still had the information. They've still had. Um, teaching different teaching like I, I I did a lot of homeschooling with, uh, with her and taught her different stuff how to use a knife how to um how to slice an onion how to scramble eggs um how to use a camera how to edit photos you know all stuff like how to how to set your computer up for a zoom meeting you know all, all stuff like that that she probably wouldn't have learned as efficiently had she been at school she'd probably still be just grabbing a pot noodle or 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 whatever um but yeah that like going back to the the retreat thing that can you can you imagine just you you went in there hunky-dory everything's fine everything's normal coming out and you can't go anywhere you've got to wear a mask everywhere you go and i mean what what system shock that must have been (laughs) It's like the whole world got to go to Camp Wakanda, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, do, do you know Duncan Trussell? Heard of Duncan Trussell? No, I haven't, no. Uh, he's a comedian. He's a friend of uh, Joe Rogan. I've, I've got a, a quote from him somewhere. Yeah. Let me just quickly find it because he's, he's, he's a bit of a hippie. Um, very clever guy, but he, um, and he a deep thinker. And he said, some poor phoneless fool is probably sitting next to a waterfall somewhere, totally unaware of how angry and scared he's supposed to be. <laughs> Which, uh, I, I thought that was a, 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 like a brilliant quote because um, I think like, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who run my mouth over how the government's been, been doing things um, or the international governments. Cause, because I think, I think, in opposition to what most, a lot of people are thinking is that they're just trying their best. They don't know what to do. They've never had to do this sort of thing before. Um, and I'm not one of these people who's like, like, I'll just open it all back up because there's obviously reasons why they're not. I don't think there's some sort of, I mean, you can't get governments to the world over to agree on anything, let alone trying to crash an economy or whatever people are, you know, taking people's jobs or, like a social experiment to see if they can get compliance to get people to do that all over the world would be, that'd be impossible. But um, 
I do sort of, I, I did a podcast with my brother earlier and I said that I'm, I'm getting a bit, a little bit sick of social media because everyone's got an opinion on everything and everybody can voice that opinion when, you know, in reality, really just, just think, think your thoughts. You don't need to put them out there on the socials. Yeah. Or for you, you know, if you, you put it out there, people should try not to spend a lot of time on it. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I entertain all sorts of theories and opinions on, on the COVID thing. Once again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a politician. I'm not working at the, the highest level of, you know, government or even business because, you know, the people at the top see what's coming first sometimes. Yeah. Um, so whether this actually came out from, you know, China or whether it was, you know, purposely done or, you know, whether some other country did it or, you know, whether they exaggerated it because, you know, that's what some of the people are saying. Like it is real, but it was exaggerated. Um but like you're saying, some countries had to do what they had to do, right? Like in Canada, I was really glad that the federal government and the provincial government, who don't sometimes see eye to eye, they actually took a stance and did a lockdown unanimously on both levels, federal and provincial. Whereas we saw with the states, you know, the federal was sort of on one side, the local states were on the other side. But then you're seeing different things, right? Like you're seeing places that were on lockdown, like say New York, that had rampant numbers. And then you're seeing places like Florida, where I think a friend of mine who lives there is saying they started opening up as early as June last year. Mm -hmm. They recently, you know, held a Super Bowl and not that much in terms of numbers, right? So we really don't know. I mean, you really have to be a scientist. I always tell people um, you need to have the virus under the, the magnifying glass. And even then you have to be a, an experienced scientist to know what's really going on, right? Yeah. All I know is like, this has happened. And um, we just have to deal with it the best we can, right? You have to make a decision on, on the vaccine and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's starting to roll out in the UK now as it, as it is. I know a few people have had it. My dad's had it um, as in the vaccine, not the, the virus. Um, and for a while, uh, because I went back to work late May, uh, working in a restaurant, and we were able to do takeaways um, and the UK did open back up for a little while in sort of a, a limited um, capacity. Um, so you could have indoor seating, but no more than six people, etc. cetera. Um, but it was almost like, especially where I live, where it's, it's not a big, it's not a big city. We had very low numbers. So we got put in like a tier system at one point. So tier one being that you're allowed to do more or less whatever. Uh, tier two, uh, certain restrictions. Tier three, more or less lockdown. Tier four, full lockdown. Um, and Hereford was in tier one for, a, well, it lasted about a week actually, and I'll get onto that in a second. But um, it, it was a strange sort of feeling. You knew it was out there, but I didn't, I didn't know anybody that had it within Hereford and then all of a sudden just before Christmas uh, one of our staff members got it and it sort of hit hit then it was like shit this is real yeah potentially if it's that contagious we're all going to get it now um and you know you have your health concerns I'm asthmatic it's like you know how bad would this potentially affect me um my dad is uh nearly 70 years old uh, he lives with me He's in that age bracket where they say it's it's really dangerous. He's had pneumonia before, so 
it yeah it, it wasn't it wasn't until sort of december when it was like oh shit this virus is real and it's getting closer but yeah go back to the tier um we we got put into tier one um and it's they're supposed to be like travel restrictions like you're not we, we're right on the border of wales so wales were in lockdown at the time but you so the pubs opened so people you could well it was, it was a funny one and the pubs sort of got around it it was like if you had a meal you could stay for a couple of pints yeah so people were buying a meal and ordering like 10 pints but people were people were coming from different tiers to hereford because we were one of the only places in the country that were tier one the reason we're tier one is because we're rural and everything's you know we've we haven't got a low low population but everything's sort of spaced out with villages and towns that are, are nearby so it's easier to control um and all of a sudden you've got places that are in lockdown because their numbers are high people are just coming across the border you can even go into our gyms and things like that so it, well it, it lasted about a week before it was put we were put back into like tier three and then just after christmas but back into lockdown again um but you can see people starting to get fed up with it over here getting to the point now that, that they've been told the restrictions will be lifted so it's gone from being like a ghost town literally nobody on the streets i could walk to work and not even see a car to now it's more or less like everything's open but i don't know what people are doing because there's nothing open but they're just sort of congregating in town buying a coffee sitting close to each other it's like you do realize that this is gonna potentially cause another spike in numbers meaning we're gonna have to lock down again but i think people are just you know it's a year on now and they're, they're just sick of it they're just let us go out at it some of them have had their vaccines, so they feel like they're invincible. So it's, yeah, it's, um, it's a strange one as well. Cause I think that when it does all but open back up, I'm a little bit anxious about that. I haven't been in big crowds for over a year. Cause I actually had to isolate a week before the UK lockdown because my daughter got sent home from school. She had a cough. She got tested. There was, you know, she, she wasn't ill. No, did she get it? She didn't get tested, but nothing sort of came of it. She just had, it was, just that sort of end of end of winter got a bit of a tickly cough school didn't take any any time in just sending her home and that back then it was like a 14 day isolation period and i just moved into my new house and she had to spend the first two weeks in her bedroom because <laughs> at that point it was like it's proper isolation leave leave stuff outside the door for her don't come into contact um and yeah so that's got there's a funny story about that because when she eventually did come out of her bedroom. It's like she'd never been outside before. Because we were on a new street and we went for a walk and stuff. She was like, oh, look at that tree. Look at that. It's like, Jesus, you have been outside. You've seen trees before. Yeah. And that's the thing with something like this, like I think the first thing you need is proper information. And again, when you have a virus that's a novel virus, it's, it's hard to get that because the scientists at the, the top end, they're trying to figure out what the correct information is. And then you've got, you know, politicians who are, dissecting the information and communicating it they don't know you know 100 percent um depending on the politician what their connection is to science what their belief is uh, then you've got the conspiracy theorists who are you know battling against the politicians and the scientists saying you know bill gates caused this and yeah. um you know saying this is by 5g now once again like i say i'm open to all theories because if proven nothing's going to surprise me in this kind of world we live in I um, was reading the other day, they're trying to do this transhuman project where they're trying to harness the sun. So they're putting this device around the sun 
And they're going to use that to bring people back from the dead by, you know, using AI to revitalize their DNA in their old body form. And we're getting into, you know, a crazy world and none of it surprises me anymore, but you really need good information so you can make correct decisions. And, and if you don't have that, you're just sort of guessing yourself and trying to do the best that you can. Right. Yeah. So that's tricky. I mean, I will say that during the first lockdown we had over here, so I had about 10 weeks, 10 weeks off. And because me and my daughter's mum aren't together anymore, she um, spends time between the two households. Um, and initially, because of me having asthma, because my dad lives with me and him being um, in almost in his 70s, uh, we made the decision between between the two households uh, she would stay with with me until we had more information on you know free movement between houses or or whatever so and i'll be honest i actually i actually um really enjoyed that six weeks of not having to work and being able to spend that time with my kid um, like I said, we did quite a few bits, but like the main thing that sticks out in my head is taking uh, taking the dog down to the river, taking the cameras with us, taking photos, um, and just just having that time. Because I mean, this isn't going to happen in my lifetime again, I don't think. So having having that amount of time, you know that sort of reset. I mean, I, I found loads of stuff that I was really, really interested in, like the, the aviation over, over Hereford. I've got so many, I was all right geek. Every time I heard a helicopter or plane, I was out in the garden with my phone or my camera, taking photos of um, what I was seeing going over. I saw because Hereford's military background uh, with the SAS here, um, mm. quite often see um, Puma helicopters flying really low. Uh, with all the doors open, you can see the soldiers in the side and everything. It was like really, really, really cool. Um, then coming up with my, because my brother's um, ex-RAF, and we like trying to come up with theories as to why we were having such a heavy military presence. I was like trying to get find out whether he'd been put on a standby list to be recalled, because there was talk at one point of martial law if people were going to start rioting and um, and whatnot. I think that was more the bigger cities like Birmingham, London. And yeah. you know, I was like thinking, yeah, well, that's what that's why they're dropping they're, they're practicing touch and go drills and stuff, fantasizing in my own head because I didn't have anything else to occupy it. <laughs> my my only regret though is not starting this podcast last March because I kept putting it off. I had everything ready to go. Yeah. I just kept, for whatever reason, I kept putting it off. Um, I'd love to be able to get to the point with the podcast where I can just sit in front of a camera and just chat shit. And yeah. But I'm not at that point yet. I still, I'm still enjoying having conversations with people too much, I think. Yeah. You know what? It, um, it did wonders. I know a lot of families that, that benefited from, you know, once again, getting into camp Wakanda mode because, you know, mm -hmm. they got a paid lockdown, essentially, luckily enough for that. They didn't have to worry about rent or anything. Uh, the government came in and, you know, kicked in with subsidy payments to help families who were, you know, were affected. Uh, with loss of income in the hospitality industry and, you know, airline industry, things like that. And, you know, I remember reading a quote at that time saying, if you can't go outside, go inside, which meant that instead of going outside and getting validation and entertainment from the external world, 
go inside yourself, go inside your mind and your body and sort of, you know, get to know yourself because when we're in the, the nine to five, the rat race, the routine, everything's external, you know, from the time you wake up, it's all about your kids. If you have them, your mornings, you know, rushing to work, uh, traffic, commuting, uh, getting to work. And at work, you're actually doing someone else's vision, right? If you're, you're employed by someone. Yeah. Um, even if, you know, even if it's a professional career at the end of the day, if you're working for someone, it's according to their vision and their strategy coming home, you know, kids after school, helping them with homework. So it's really not as much about you. You might get your, you know, your coffee time or your gym time if you go to work out or on the weekends, if, you know, if you go clubbing or you go, you know, with friends, things like that, but that's maybe 10% of, you know, hundred of, sorry, of 90% that's dedicated to everyone else. It was really nice to see, okay, first thing is you're in this lockdown, you have to stay at home and two things happen. One is, you know, you become uncomfortable because you're not used to this. And again, you're, you know, you're surviving and living off external validations, you know, going to the pub, eating out, being with friends, you need those things to, you know, validate your comfort. Or the other thing was, you know, someone like me, um, I've always been able to sort of, you know, be on my own and enjoy being on my own because I'm, I'm an empath and people who are empaths, um, they really need recharge time. So I actually took advantage of this to sort of dust off the cobwebs on a couple of old things that were on the back burner and just get back into them because I had sort of like this, this small timeout. And I saw with families who, who did that, who embraced it, now they're hooked on it. You know, they don't want to go back to work. They don't want to go outside because they found, you know, reuniting with their family who they might have not known as much, you know, their, their spouse or their kids and, you know, being able to sort of um, educate them better, you know, train them better, like how are you doing those things with your daughter? Uh, but you don't get those, you know, sort of opportunities in life. And for me, like, um, you know, a book came out of it, right? I'd always had it on the, again, the back burner to, to pen a book. And when COVID hit, I wrote this short post on Facebook. It was sort of like, um, you know, maybe a couple of paragraphs, just a, a worst case extreme. If COVID was to, to stay here forever, it was sort of like this future vision of everyone wearing masks and, and um, you know, going to visit people and, um, you know, you couldn't eat fresh food anymore. And, you know, typical, you know, Mad Max kind of world in the future. And then someone just commented and said, hey, you should write something. You know, I, I really like this sort of sentiment you put out. And I thought about it. And then I said, you know what, I've got the time now. And I had these sort of thoughts in my mind. And I said, okay, should I do fiction or should I do nonfiction? And I said, let me do nonfiction because I'm a big self-help motivation, you know, sort of that sort of space. And um, I took some time out and I gave myself a sort of routine and a schedule. And this was still intense because I was kind of semi-working from home because in our business, we can be virtual, plus looking after the kids and, you know, the house and things like that. So at the end of the day, I would give myself a task of writing at least 500 words a day. And I finished maybe 90% of the book in about, um, I'd say, one month and one week. And then I used the remainder of the, the second month just to sort of edit it and, you know, fine tune it and things like that. And then I self-published it on Amazon. I asked my brother to design the cover. And, and I put it out there and that wouldn't have come if it uh, wasn't for, for the lockdown. I would have just, you know, kept it on the back burner. Um, you know, with, um, with my music, I've always been into music. And then um, in my past life, I was a professional musician, teaching music, working in the, the performance aspect of music. And then I, I switched to a, a different career after that. But 
again, that was always on the back burner. And then um, I said, okay, let me just, you know, get back to getting into the guitar. And because of that, I started, you know, I put out again another Facebook video. And from that, it led to me doing this, this gig that I do once a month on this virtual Facebook group. And, you know, it's not anything, um, you know, great or anything, but it's an outlet for me. And I get to share music with other people. You know, I'm hoping they enjoy it. But, you know, all of these things come uh, with the kids. I got to know my kids better because if I would have been working and, you know, that would have been my priority, you know, because when you become a parent, there's no manual for it. And really, I have this, uh, this thing actually wrote on my bathroom mirror when it fogged up after a shower. <laughs> they will be as you are, something like that. Um, because your kids will be whatever you are, whatever your limitations are, whatever your positive qualities are, you passed it down to your kids. And people really shouldn't parent kids before really parenting themselves. Like you have to really know yourself, know what your limitations are. Because if you can't understand yourself, you're just going to take it out on the kids, right? So when they do stuff and you get frustrated with them, that's not their fault. It's actually your fault because of your limitations. You don't know how to handle you know, the behavior and just by scolding them, you know, it's not really the, the most efficient or the best thing to do, but we do it because, you know, that's our immediate uh, temper that comes out or maybe we were brought up that way. So that's the only model we know. So I really took some time out with that. And um, I got into this um, Scientology course called self-analysis. Now I know Scientology has got um, mixed reviews, depending on who you ask, you know, the poster person for Scientology is Tom Cruise and John Travolta. But, you know, you have to sort of dissect the information. In Scientology, there's the, the information which comes from Ron Hubbard, who was a person who interviewed thousands of people, you know, lived in sort of tribal settings. And he almost took all of these sort of best practices and principles and put it into what he calls Scientology, which is, you know, his, his version of a, a religion. And then there's the cult aspect to it or the group aspect, which, you know, that's what people sort of, you know, are negative about. So I really think if you're going to get into Scientology, um, you know, I'm not a, a Scientologist. I just sort of did that one course, but separate always the, the product knowledge from, from the group setting, um, because I think they've got a bad rap for wanting you to be a member, you know, just like the pyramid scheme groups and things like that. Um, but, you know, I did this course and self-analysis, um, the basic concept is life is about survival, right? Either in, if you're faced with a confrontation, you win or the situation wins. And if you want to maximize that life, you have to overcome and you have to survive. And they've got something which is called a tone scale, which is uh, sort of like the commandments, but it's all the different sort of levels that you can be, you know, emotional, physical, mental, and you want to be at the highest point in each of these levels. And you sort of take a self-analysis of where you are and how you can be there. And then they've got, you know, follow-up courses where you can get into Dianetics, which is sort of getting into the subconscious mind and hypnosis and things like that and doing counseling. So there's different levels, but I only just did this small level and it was 40 bucks. I said, look, we're starting lockdown. Let me just do this course. And um, it changed my whole life because I think if there was no lockdown and if um, I didn't reevaluate my parenting, I don't know what sort of dad I would have become you know, I would have had all these limitations and not that I don't have, you know, uh, limitations now, but I'd say I'd have like 80, 90% less. And I'm confident in saying that because, you know, after learning that course, it taught me how to, to be a better person. 
for myself. And because of that, now when I interact with my kids, I want to give that to the kids. But also I'm able to sort of see myself introspectively in how I interact with them. So when they do something bad, I don't, you know, immediately shout or get frustrated at them because I see what they're doing is, you know, they're kids. They don't have the logical reasoning to know what they're doing is bad. And by me sort of, uh, you know, getting affected by their frustration, we're just both going down the rabbit's hole, right? No good is ever coming from that. So now I sort of try to, you know, use a little bit of sales when I deal with them, use a little bit of psychology, you know, see where they're coming from. And, um, you know, when they do something, I don't say, no, don't do that. You know, I'll sort of get them away from what they're doing. And then I'll, I'll tell them what they should do, you know, sort of reframe it and flip the focus on that and give them that sort of positive encouragement. So then, you know, they're not affected because how many times the kids hear no, 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 as they're growing up. Yeah. And that I honestly believe gets into the subconscious. And you see when kids are born, they're just explosive. They're flowing with, you know, super conscious energy. But then again, the limitations in life sort of bring them down. Right. So um, once again, I mean, bring it back to a long-winded story. I, like this is how COVID affected me. And that's just from, you know, six weeks of lockdown. So imagine the more time you spend with yourself. You know, there's, there's an old um, Kijong theory that says um, the more you go out, the more there is to know. And the more you go in, the more there is to know. So this is, you know, infinite and exponential. You can never really say you've fully known yourself on the outside. You can never really say you know yourself fully on the inside as well. Sorry, you can never know yourself fully on the inside. You can never really say you know fully on the outside. I honestly think there's something behind the universe um, just because of the law of infinity. There has to be. Um, it, it's my opinion, if I would bet money on it, that we can't see it, um, but there is something beyond it. And it's just going to go and go and go. And same with the inside. It's like an onion. You can peel the infinite layers of yourself. And life's too short. You know, the average life is maybe 80 to 100 years. You know, you could spend, I think, countless lifetimes just figuring yourself out, bettering yourself, maintaining yourself. And I think the, the lockdown was a great start to all of this. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of people in a different situations as maybe you and I, where um, they are just in a flat on their own. Um, and you could see why that would have potentially a, a negative effect on them and then then have a negative view of how the lockdown was. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a garden. Um, like I said, my daughter was about, so there was purpose for me to be getting up in the morning and making sure that she was doing bits of bobs that she was supposed to be doing. Um, I'll tell you what I did try and do, and because it was always something that I, I always thought, um, and I didn't really think too much about what I was doing was I tried to be quite loosey goosey about things like when we would be doing school um, and what subject. And it wasn't until maybe two, three weeks into doing the homeschooling that I was like, Darren, you dickhead. She's been doing a routine since she was four years old. And you've taken that away and you're wondering why she can't be bothered to do anything. It's because she's gotten like she oh she was twelve um, when all this was going on, and so you know I mean that's that's eight years of basically being in the army, being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, 
to then being given Lucy Goosey dad saying, oh, I'll tell you what, do you want to just do some arts today? Do you want to learn how to cook today? You know, you don't, don't worry about maths. Dad doesn't like maths anyway. So do you know what I mean? And yeah. it, it did have, unfortunately, a bit of a negative effect because then when I had to start introducing the more, what we call over here, the core subjects, your science, maths, English, it, it, was, it was like I'd created a mini me, a mini sort of like anti-establishment. I don't, if I don't want to do something, I'm not doing it. 12, no. 12 year old, which in some ways is good, but I, she, she's not struggling getting back into school. It's more, she now thinks that she doesn't want to go to school that she, unfortunately I've, I've I think I helped fuel that in the fact that she, she now thinks that she can learn better from home, that, the teachers are all this, they're all that. Whereas potentially if this hadn't happened, this that wouldn't be an issue. She's always been somebody that's been quite, um, she's always been quite into school, quite like going to school, seeing her friends. Whereas she seems to, seems to have got into a mode where she's like, I don't like people. I'd rather just be in my house or in my room. I'll connect to people via the internet, but, do you know, even saying because she's quite a good soccer player, trying to get her to go over the field and just kick a ball about with me, it's like I'm asking her to do the most monumental task in the world because she's just got so used to doing everything from her little her little hub, if you know what I mean. And I think there's going to be potentially a generation of kids like that now that are going to be. Well, I was talking to a guy at work about this. I said. I, I was wondering whether there's going to be a generation of kids that are going to be obsessive compulsive over washing their hands. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, it came about because I saw a, a video on Facebook. It was like a viral video of a little girl who was now one. So she's just started to walk. Um, and there was a number of thoughts I had, I, like, I hadn't even thought about before. But like her first year has been in a lockdown, the first year of her life. And everything she saw attached to a wall, she thought was a hand sanitizing station. Everything, yeah. plug sockets, everything. And it was loads of thoughts I had on that. It's like there's, there is a group of kids that are used to, when they go out, not seeing their parents' faces. You know what I mean? They go out, if they're going out of the house, we're covering our face. And that's their first first year, first two years of their life has been that that's their reality. And that's got like, in my head, that's crazy. So I mean, for, for us, it's just like, oh, it'll be over soon. Everything will be back to normal soon. Because that is normal. Yeah, for them, that's their natural worldview. Yeah. I was listening to a comedian earlier and he was saying about um, because because they've been in lockdown in, in L.A., his son, who was born just just before the lockdown started, his son knows nine people. To him, there are nine people in the world. Wow. And that's because they don't go out to whichever state he's in. Um, they don't go out to the parks and stuff because it's still frowned upon. Um, so they might go for a little stroll, but he's still in a push chair. He's not seeing, not seeing anybody. So he's worried we did it in a comedic way but he was like i think my son thinks that he's a dog because he he only knows he knows nine people but he knows four dogs 
and he's still crawling about. He's still going in the dog's bowls and stuff. He said, so what's he going to be like when he sees another child that looks... <laughs> and I, I thought it's, it's quite a clever way of looking at it, really. No, I, I honestly never thought about it till, till you just brought it up. And, you know, um, you're right, because people, especially, you know, kids who don't have any siblings, um, you know, not able to interact, um, you know, school, daycare, that's a way to interact, build your social skills, you know, see other kids. Like you're saying, for them to have this viewpoint of the world where everyone's wearing masks and you have to sort of stand in line and stay away from people. And we come from a world where we just, you know, jumped in with people. Like we come from, you know, a lot of people and then get into ourselves. It almost, uh, it can build us, you know, a minimal level of subconscious fear in them, right? Mm -hmm. um, in how they sort of interact with people. I'm hoping that, you know, like from referencing what I was saying before, you know, instead of basing off the tribal setting, we're going to get a new generation of, of people who start from the inside, who start from their home, from themselves, from their families, and then go out into the external world. And like you're saying, start by, you know, maybe nine people, and then you gradually increase it. Because one thing I find is, you know, from when you're small, you get thrown into this tribal setting. You're not given a chance to find out who you really are um, because of peer pressure, because of experiences and influence from your parents, your immediate and extended family, you know, from the TV shows that you watch, from the books that you read. You know, one thing is with my kids, we never taught them many nursery rhymes because when I looked at the words of it, you know, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, had a great fall. Uh, Jack and Jill went up the hill, tumbled down, you know, hurt their head, you know, things like yeah. that, right? Um, the one with the spider going up, you know, that's, that's fear-based. And mm -hmm. so instead I taught them rock and roll songs like the Beatles and the Elvis and, you know, the clean ones, of course. Yeah. Um, um, that just reminded me of um, uh, two things in, um, in Wakanda, because it was almost like you didn't, you didn't really learn the songs, did you? You, you learned like the cadence of them, but um, yeah, I don't know if they still, would still do it but you brought in the bob marley song for <laughs> one of the breakfast songs and also on i think it was the international day where you had to do something to do with your country um you did go canada instead of because you didn't know the canadian national anthem so you you changed go bananas and you did go canada i think it was yeah, this yeah that was that was funny. That was one of the things as a unit leader, you were supposed to lead the, the camp, sort yeah. of like a grace before meals with a different song each time. And then I ran out of camp songs. So I, I got into pop songs and things like that. <laughs> it was good. Uh, I, I seem to remember Jen not being overly happy about that. She liked, uh, she liked her things done the traditional way, didn't she? Yeah, it's camp, right? But yeah, I was yeah. appealing to the audience, the counselors who were into, you know, thug life and things yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you touched on um, the fact that you're a musician. Yeah. Um, is that something that you would go back into? Is, did, you, did you change sort of your career? Was that, was that like a monetary thing or was it just you were done being do, like performing? Monetary and musicians? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, I came from a family that was music-based. So um, from my mom's side, uh, my granddad used to play in the big bands in Calcutta. And then, you know, his children were well-versed in music. They became music teachers. 
and they actually had a, a music retail store in in Canada, sorry, in in Calcutta in India. And at the time, you know, the, the British, because of the war, they were in Calcutta. And when they left, they left all their musicians and um, sorry, they left all their musical instruments. And my, my granddad and his brother would pick it up, refurbish and sell it. And that's sort of like how the store started. So I grew up in this, this, this music setting of having that retail store and also having music teachers as my influence. So I picked up music there. And in, um, in high school, when we had to pick what we wanted to get into for college, I was actually going to go into computers because um, I was into sort of, you know, formatting computers back in the day. And I wanted to, to get into the tech side of things. But then I saw in my friend's application, they had chosen uh, guitar at a college named Humber College. I'm like, what do you mean guitar? Like, you can do this in, in college? I had no idea, right? Um, and they're like, yeah, we're going to major in guitar. I said, that's awesome. You know, like, I play guitar. I was kind of playing, you know, hobby-wise uh, for fun in random rock bands back in the day. And I said, forget computers. I want to do this. So overnight, I, um, I, I just scratched it out and I put uh, music as number one choice. And then I put computers. And my dad was upset. He wasn't too happy about this. My mom was kind of on the fence because she's a music teacher. Um, but it worked out that I went and did um, four years of music in my, in my college setting. So some people went to university. I went to a music school called Humber College in Toronto, which was renowned for jazz performance, composition, and arranging. And what was really cool was the, the faculty that taught at the school, they were actually playing with uh, the famous jazz musicians in the U.S., so, you know, uh, Pat LaBarbera, who's playing with Buddy Rich and, you know, uh, Ted Quinlan, who's the guitar guy who came from Berkeley, from the U.S., you know, these amazing music schools, uh, Don Thompson, et cetera, the list goes on. So these people were living and breathing music and they brought it to Canada and they brought that experience and that wealth of knowledge and they started teaching it in the school, which was just sort of like an informal thing. You can imagine going to final exams, which is which is music, right? Like it's fun. You're not you're stressed, like you know, doing a, a regular degree. And again, you know, bringing sort of like the the camp Wakanda terminology. Four years of music school is great because you're not caught in the rat race of a traditional degree or diploma. It's music. It's time out. It's therapy. It's arts based. So you're finding out a lot about yourself and you know about music. And after college, you can do different things. You can get into education, you can get into uh, performance, you know, you can start up a band or you can do um, freelance music, which is what I did. So I did a bit of teaching and I did um, a lot of freelance stuff. So I had these gigs where um, I had like these cruise ship contracts. And usually with a cruise ship, you have to sign up for a six month contract or a one year contract. But I had this gig where I was relieving people who were on vacation. So, you know, they'd be out for two, three weeks or a month and then I'd fill in their spot. And then when they came back, I got to jump to another ship. So that was really cool because um, you don't have to stay on one ship in, in one contract for a long time. I got to check out, you know, different ships, play with different bands. And in a ship, you can play in different musical settings. So you can have like, the, you know, the DJ playing or you can have the um, uh, the typical, you know, pop rock band that's doing covers, and, you know, you just dance to it. I was in something called a show band. So a show band is at the, the main theater. And your job is to play in an orchestra consisting of, you know, woodwinds and acoustic instruments. And you're sort of backing up uh, the Broadway dancers that are there. And you're also backing up 
um, magicians and jugglers and comedians that come on. So it's kind of like the, the David Letterman band, you know, that kind of a gig. Yep. The cool thing about it, and, you know, depending how you look at it, the not so cool thing about it is um, none of the music is practiced. You're reading from a book and you might have just maybe the evening off before the show to rehearse your parts. So you have to know your stuff really well because you've never seen this stuff before. So like if a magician comes on board and this is his, you know, one hour set, he's given you his book, say for the guitar, and you got to read it and play it as though you played it a hundred times before, because it has to come out, you know, with conviction. So that's really the hot seat every night. And you're playing with caliber of musicians that are again from different parts of the world. And um, it's great because, you know, six nights a week, you're playing at this, this really good level, you know, you're earning decent money. And um, you're on a cruise ship, right? You're meeting, again, people from different parts of the world. Uh, when I came back, I got into the teaching. And then um, it, it was sort of hitting a plateau point because I didn't really have a, a mentor at the time on how you should make it in the music business. Because where a lot of people get confused is you have the musician who's an artist, but then you also have the business side of the music, and very rarely are people good at both. And both of them are two very different things. The musician's job is, or the artist's job is just to be creative, be inspired and, you know, compose and, and have the end product. And then the business side of it has nothing to do with the creative or the, you know, the composition side. You have to put on your business hat and go out there and do marketing and, you know, financing, things like that. And it seems to me there's not many creative types that, are wired to think that separate way of trying to market themselves, etc. And that's like for anything that's creative, I think. I think um, whether it's music, whether it's photography, because you're, you're, you're to be good at those things, I, I genuinely do think you have to be wired differently to the person that would be good at the marketing, at the at the selling of knowing where to push products, um, even, even down to how much to charge for things. Do you know what I mean? Like as I always found that I was a creative um, fitness guy, if you know what I mean? Like I like to use my imagery to help sell my product. Um, and, but I, I wasn't, I was never, want to whore myself out in the way that they are over sort of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter now, um, posting shirtless pictures and stuff. I, I've done that for a joke, don't get me wrong, but it's, I've never done it like seriously. Um, and I guess it, it's got to be the same with the musician. You're, like you, you don't want to spend time doing that. Like, no, I want, I, want to, I want to make my music. I want to take my photos. I want to create new workouts. The business side of it is just well you might be the same as me at the time it's like nah, that that shit's boring i ain't got time yeah. for that and that's probably i reckon you probably lose quite a lot of people that potentially could have been great musicians great artists great photographers great you name it and they sort of they just disappear because they, they they're not able to get whatever the product is that they have created out there to the right oh right people the right markets the and it, it's sad really because that's something that maybe they should have taught you when you went to music school if well they had it know. in the in the later years um there's a guitarist from the rock band called triumph rick emmett who sort of you know started the the music business course 
we had a, a faculty member named Brian Lillis, who was very business minded. Um, I think he was equally business minded as he was, you know, uh, an achieved um, saxophone player. Um, he's the one who sort of did a lot of the business side of the music school, you know, setting up the, the foundations, the curriculum, things like that. Um, but again, it, it's two different animals. A musician, you know, they're good at being a musician, but even if you want to try the business side, they don't know how. I see some of my early peers who are successful now today. It's because they had family members who were sort of in that same business space and they were able to mentor them along. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came, as I mentioned before, from a, a retail music background, but that's very different from promoting an artist. And the way it's set up, uh, you know, back in the day, people would take advantage of the artists. Um, they saw them as a product, you know, money-wise, they never gave them their dues. You know, I heard of people, play, you know, getting paid 500 bucks a week playing the Alice Cooper band. And, um, you know, not to say that, you know, Alice was a bad person or anything, but that's just how it was. You know, we've heard about record companies who are, you know, now sometimes, you know, suffering with, you know, people like Spotify coming into the, the space, Apple iTunes coming to the space, um, trying to give musicians, you know, a better, you know, share. But again, we're, you know, we're hearing that it, it's not the share that they, they really need. And again, this is not just music, you know, even in the NBA, you've got that creative sports player who comes into to the NBA they can play them, but then after the contract's done or after the NBA, if they haven't sort of, you know, got their business hat on, like you see with Shaq or some of these other people, you know, Kobe was doing that. He got into business. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't know what to do because business is a total different beast. And even if you are eager and you want to learn it, um, the resilience that you need to do business is on a different level than the resilience as an artist. Because as an artist, you're just welcome to everything inspirational that's coming in. You're not dealing with any sort of, you know, rejection or politics or things like that. So the artist has to actually learn those skills and then get into business. And I'm glad people like Jay-Z, you know, he set up his label so that he's bringing on artists, but he's not taking advantage of them. He's also educating them, you know, on how they should sort of view the business side of things. Even if you don't want to get into it, just be aware of it, right? Like if you look at Steve Aoki... He's a DJ who's playing probably, you know, gigs more days in the year than there are days in the year. Like sometimes he's <laughs> yeah. double booked. You know, he stopped drinking. He's sort of taking care of his health, which is what you should do, right? You see people like Bieber, they go out on performances and then, you know, they can't handle the stress. And it is very stressful. You know, it's, it's not a party, even though there is the party. Very few people are able to take that step back, go back to their hotel room. And, um, you know, just recover. Like, that's one of the things I love about Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, he's performing at a a very high level at this day and age, being the age that he's at. And, you know, the the physique that he's got. Mm -hmm. But he's very, you know, he doesn't party. I mean, he does from time to time, but that's not his, his main focus. And the moment he does any activity, he's equally compensating with rest. You need to do that when you're performing at that level. And it's unfortunate that, you know, performance artists don't know this right they get sucked into the party with the you know the, the drugs the girls the alcohol etc things like that and yeah. then they sometimes don't make it like you're saying yeah um so what what was the the shift then from essentially you've done that shift you've gone from the creative the artist the, the musician and now is it mortgages you do now? 
Yeah. So I'm currently in the, the mortgage space. And what happened was um, I wanted to learn about money. I wanted to learn about finance. And the best place to learn that is at a bank, right? Yeah. Is that that's the, the life and blood of any bank is currency. And before doing that, um, I was kind of in between jobs. Uh, I got into sort of like the hospitality industry. So I got a job in a, a catering company as a chef. So I was working in different restaurants, just sort of, you know, thinking about how I could go about doing this, trying to earn some money in the, the meantime. I stopped teaching. I stopped uh, performing. Then there's um, this conference came to Toronto and it was called the Wealth Expo. And the three headliners for this conference were Donald Trump, Tony Robbins, and Richard Branson. Oh. Um, yeah. And, you know, I always heard about these guys, but, you know, never sort of uh, full swing. And I was always into reading about, you know, motivational speakers, you know, that space. You know, I'd started reading um, Think and Grow Rich way back. And um, so I said, okay, let me go check out this conference. And um, it was unfortunate that Richard Branson came via webcast, but that was okay. And I think it wasn't even live. It was recorded, but, but that's fine. The message was there. So I got to see Donald Trump speak live for maybe two hours. And that was amazing. Now, again, you know, there's this whole thing about Trump as a politician. I'm speaking of, of Trump as a businessman. And again, there's another whole thing about Trump as a businessman, but I'm talking about his views on just, you know, just general business guidelines and principles. And that changed me because to hear it from someone who's very charming and entertaining, and we know a story of being a, a billionaire, going to bus, coming back up to, to being a billionaire, just having that mindset of, you know, what it means to have sort of that certainty for, for money and success. Hearing him speak was great. I actually recorded it. And then hearing Tony Robbins, that was, again, life-changing. I'd never you know, sort of heard about him. I knew sort of, you know, something from, from reading about him. And I was one of those people, I was very low pro. So if I went to a concert, I wouldn't be up there, you know, standing and jumping or, you know, rara, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But Tony Robbins was able to get, you know, 40,000 people up and jumping. And he talks about, you know, principles of getting into state and, you know, your mindset, your physiology, you know, your belief systems, all your limiting patterns. And I didn't really understand it back then. I, I was catching glimpses of things. But I know it had an effect on me. So I started applying to the banks and I got into a, a call center position at a bank. And it was, you know, it's starting at the very bottom in terms of where the bank is. But it's a great position because you get to learn everything about banking. And on a basic level, you get to learn about how deposit accounts work, you know, credit lines, basic about mortgages, um, you know, about savings generally. And that's where I really learned um, not about money, but sort of like the structure that money's based on because everyone, you know, has to deal with personal finances. And then through there, I got into the, uh, the mortgage space. And have you, is it your own company that you, you now run? It's not my own company. So I was doing mortgages with that same bank for about, I think, four or five years. And then I left to go independent, but I'm part of a, a franchise now. Okay. So I'm technically a, a mortgage agent. And the nice thing is, rather than working for one bank before, you know, one size fits all, mm -hmm. you've got options with, with different lenders, which is great. And is that something that you, you enjoy? What I mean is like um, Croydon now versus Croydon, the full-time musician. It is this 
the like did you make that life turn and does it make you happy this this kind of work or is there still i mean not that you don't ever play music or anything is there the part of you that thinks if i stuck at it and i had this knowledge that i have now of business and finance if i'd had that say 20 years ago do you do you think of what could have been in terms of your your music career or are you happy with the fact that no that's behind me this is a new chapter you know what i today i struggle with who is croydon <laughs> because, <laughs> because i really don't know i can't identify myself with with one thing i know sometimes people do that that's their bread and butter that's their identity but for me like i've gotten into so many different things you know music uh, journalism you know the restaurant industry you know banking finance and now with you know broadcasting with um, with the podcasting all of that writing articles and, you know, there's new things to come. I, I want to have a, a startup coming up in the future. Um, where that space is, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm eyeing AI. Um, you know, in hindsight, um, it would have been great to have that business knowledge, you know, getting into music. But then I wouldn't be where I am today. And the other thing is when you're doing music and you're doing it at that level, it's like any other, you know, like a football person like Ronaldo performing at that level. You have to sacrifice and what you're sacrificing is evenings, weekends, and family, because that's when musicians are on. Yeah. Um, when I was in the bank, you know, I, when you're doing a, a musical instrument, you have to be dedicated to, to playing it. Otherwise, you know, you get rusty at it because it's a physical instrument. Mm -hmm. So actually, I took up DJing just to sort of keep in touch with music. And the nice thing about DJing is you just have to line up the songs. Now, not to discount DJing because, you know, there's many great things complex things you can do with DJing, but it's easier than sort of playing an instrument from a physical point of view. Um, so I was doing the, the DJ thing just to sort of keep in touch. Uh, but again, even as a DJ, you know, it's, it's an evening thing. It's a weekend thing. And then I said, look, if I want to sort of, um, you know, be involved with the family, it's not fair to the family uh, because I made that decision that I want to be there for the, for the special moments. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I was uh, watching an interview with Jose Marino the other day. And, you know, for his level, like he, I think he only attended his daughter's first birthday in person when she was like seven or eight years old. But again, you know, it's everyone has to make their own sacrifices <clears throat> with music. I didn't want to make that sacrifice. So I'm okay with, with the, the space that I'm in right now. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to, glad to hear that. Cause you know, there's, there's a number of people that I know that have um, maybe changed career or they've done it for their family but there's still that sort of yearning that there's almost like a um a disconnect from the family because they had to give up something that personally i think maybe they weren't ready to give up and um there's a bit of resentment if you know what i mean i think um like with with my dad for example when he left the raf i think he did so for family reasons for good reasons but i don't think he was quite ready to give up that um that lifestyle that sort of flying to different countries parachuting every every weekend doing parachute displays that adrenaline that you get from doing that kind of job from and also like the sort of groundbreaking um breakthroughs in in parachuting like now what they do compared to what he was doing in sort of the 80s and 90s it's like a completely different, we'll call it a sport, parachuting. But we all know that um, there's probably a reason that I'm in Hereford and it's to do with my dad's military 
uh, career. Um, and yeah, like, look at when I look back, I mean, my dad gets brought up quite a lot on my podcast because like he does live with me. Uh, I do every now and again, I do a section called shit. My dad does, which is just stuff he does in general. that annoys me. Nice. Um, but looking back, um, for, like my dad's artistry was his, was his physicality and, you know, whether it was, um, playing sport at a pretty high level, whether it was parachuting, whether it was instructing people. And I think when he, when he left the RAF, I think there was a certain amount of resentment for, for the reasons, the reasons being my mum, my brother and myself, I'm not saying he took it out on us, but when you look back at it as an adult and as a person that's about the age that he was when he, he stopped, you can see now it's like, yeah, I can see why he was moody, why he was short tempered at times because, you know, he'd made the decision. He just wasn't ready. That was, that was, that was all I yeah. think. And I think with um, like myself with the gym, when I decided to stop the gym, because I'd made the commitment to being a chef um, with the, with the co- company that I worked for, I just couldn't manage the two, but that's not to say I was ready to give up the gym and like, a few of my fucking friends are really they're starting to scratch the itch they're like come on just set it back up again and it's like oh, i yeah. would i wouldn't be in this position now if you guys all paid me on time but um <laughs> not not that's not most of them to be fair most of them were pretty good but um yeah it's um it's quite a big thing isn't it it sounds like you you're at peace with with the fact that you've you've made that decision and you're happy with it but i can see i can see why potentially it might cause like some sort of mental health issue or whatever, because you, it's almost like like with something like, like music, like you say, you have to be committed. That commitment has to be there. And when you take that away, if you're not the type of person who can just like, right, I'm taking that commitment and I'm moving it to something else. If you, if you like, say you're forced, like you can't afford to live because the music's not bringing it in. So you then have to go stack shelves at a supermarket and the entire time you're there in the back of your head is I could be playing music now. I could be playing music now. You could see why that might drive somebody a bit, a bit crazy really. Yeah. And we've seen that with COVID, right? Like with music being stopped, a lot of my, my friends from college who are full-time musicians, you know, some of them, um, you know, great musicians playing in all sorts of capacities, you know, jazz settings, rock cover band settings, you know, earning great money, all of that brought to a standstill overnight. Some of them have, you know, weathered the storm. Some of them have actually switched careers because they're not waiting for it to come back possibly. And, you know, they don't know. Some of them have gone into the virtual teaching. And, you know, when I say peace, it's almost a compromise piece. You know, I do these, um, these gigs once a month. It's just a, a 30 minute set. And it's on this Facebook group that the moderator set up just because, you know, to get the, the sort of um, the emotions going, you know, passing on positivity. Musicians can't play outside, but they can play inside. And I do these very sort of, you know, uh, general cover songs from the jazz pop era. And I, I keep it very simple because um, you know, the audience is sort of light listening. But I know what it takes to perform at the highest level because I learned that in school. And I'm not at that highest level, but I know what it takes to be there. I know what needs to be done. Um, 
and I'm thinking at the highest level because, you know, I've watched the musicians at the highest level in concert perform. But when I do these gigs, my technique is not at that highest level. In order for it to be at that highest level, I literally have to spend eight hours a day. I have to live and breathe this and I need no external distractions. And, you know, I think about that and I try to sort of implement uh, some things in some of the songs I do. Just, you know, you might see a glimpse of high level and then it's come back to the basic things. Um, so I wouldn't say it's um, it's natural piece. It's it's compromise piece for sure. Yeah. I just um, I've, I'm not sure why, but uh, my head then when you were talking about like the highest level, I was thinking about because uh, John Prashante's just gone back to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, isn't he? Um, okay. And I was thinking um, like I'm I'm super excited for to hear the next album because like Californication, by the way. Stadium Arcadium had so much of John in it. And I yeah. feel like that when he left, for whatever reason, um, he, like the next album was just like, it's, you, you can hear that jo it's not John. You can hear yeah. that, that that part of the Red Hot Chili Peppers isn't there. And when I, because I, I saw him live um, 2005, 2004, somewhere around there. And to see a guitarist, I've seen Dave Grohl as well, and like you see a guitar, well, a musician, we'll just say a musician, but for me, I play the guitar poorly, as you know. Um, and, no, no, you do, okay. <laughs> and um, to see to see somebody that is that much of a master of their craft live, and I think music is one of the only only arts that you can see that live is what you know when because you can go and watch Cristiano Ronaldo and he might have a shit game whereas most of the time when you go to a big concert in an arena the, the you know you get the occasional time where maybe Slash has had, done too many lines or drank too many beers or whatever or or whatever but to see someone like John Fashante playing the guitar in the way that he he does live I, d I don't think that can be replicated i really and the feel like if you're into it some yeah. people just like the music yeah they just go to the music but i was i was mesmerized like i got as close to the stage as i could and watching a guy that is he's basically self-taught so he's not like kirk hamnett who's been inspired by one of the greatest guitarists in in america been taught by him john for all all intents purposes he he had guitar tutorage but he He's also self-taught. He's, he's taught himself how to write music. He's alongside um, Anthony, uh, Chad, and um, Flea. But at the same time, like even Flea, watching Flea on the bass, and, and I've watched some things of Flea recently, and Flea's got to be, what, nearly 60 years old? And I watched one of those um, stupid programmes. What is it? That fucking fat British guy. Uh, James Corden. So yeah. it's, it's Carpool Karaoke. Yeah, and you see Flea in the background. Like obviously, Anthony's the one singing, but Flea is playing every note in, on his air bass, and you can see he knows that song so well. Yeah, and it's—I don't know—I've I've got this—I've got this thing in me, where, where, whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's photography, whatever it is. Extreme. What well, Rogan phrases it: extreme winners. Now that could be somebody that's just a master of a, a bass guitar or. It could be Cristiano Ronaldo, could be Michael Jordan, could be Kobe, could be LeBron, it could be you know 
name name the person. But the um, I'm obsessed with watching that that person. I don't care what it is that they're a master of. Yeah. But it fascinates me. It and it, it, it the different personalities, but also the similar the similarity in their personalities. They're all yeah. known. They're all known for more more or less across the board. They're known. There is an asshole streak to them. Yeah. And they're they're single minded. And like you said, like you you have to. If you want to be that good, you have to. You absolutely yeah. have to. You have to spend your eight hours and fuck your kids, fuck your family, and fuck all your friends because that's what you've got to do. Your working day has to be. And and people say say all the time, don't they? Like if like if you're self-employed or your job is to be a musician, like you got it easy, just playing the guitar all fucking day. Well, yeah, I am, but in order to get to the level that I know I'm capable of. I have to. I have to go to work. And work my nine to five is playing songs. It's getting my fingers into the dexterity where they can play these complex sounds and not fuck anything up, not not dead a note at any point, you know, all these things. And yeah, it just fascinates me when you when like I said, with any name the person, but the the dedication and the, the selfishness that that they can they can have and like i don't know if you've seen the michael jordan documentary but it's sort yeah. of it is eye-opening to because I, I bet you cristiano ronaldo at training as nice as a guy as he seems and he does he seems very charitable and whatnot but i bet he must be so focused and that must be so annoying to the people that are not that if you know what then I mean. you see it and you see it as um you know people call him cocky and arrogant but you need to be that because you need to be confident in your own internal skills to, to play at that level. You know, and we're talking playing at the highest level in terms of technique and proficiency. But like you mentioned with the chili peppers, there's also sort of like this personality combination that becomes the identity of, of the music. Like you said, you take away Fushiante from Chili Peppers or, you know, the lead singer, Anthony. It's a different band. You take away, you know, Sting from the police. It's a different band. You take away Kirk Hammett from Metallica. It's a different band. So sometimes these bands, the arrangement of the members, along with their, you know, technical prowess forms, you know, the actual, the music that, that you're used to. And you take away the one member, that music drastically changes. And people like Ronaldo, like you said, you know, some games he doesn't perform, which means he hasn't scored a goal. But even those games where he hasn't scored, you can see, you know, his technical mastery on the field, the way he passes the ball or, you know, accepts a ball. Like, I love watching his uh, first game uh, with Manchester United. What an amazing game, just to see the kind of player he is. The way he comes on the field, and boom, he's just after the ball. I think, like, how Jordan kind of changed the game for NBA, I think Ronaldo changed the game for, for football um, in, in a certain way because he bought that excitement back. You know, because before, you know, I mean, you had Pele, you had you know, Maradona, all those guys. Um, football was exciting, but it was still sort of technical. But this guy bought sort of like that Dennis Rodman bad boy attitude and he brought it to, to the game. And, you know, you can see it even in the games where he doesn't score. And what I love about him, and I think Ibrahimovic said it the best because they asked him once, you know, who do you prefer, um, Ronaldo or Messi? And he said that um, Messi is a, a natural player, but Ronaldo is a, a trained product. And I do think that Ronaldo has some basic natural skills but not natural compared to Messi. 
No, uh, that's no, why no, I can no. never compare the two players. But what I love about him is the, the high standard that he performs at. He's actually taught himself that, you know, because of his practice and his work ethic. And like you're saying, you need that focus. And you also need that selfishness, which is okay. Because even eat, like myself today, I never used to do this, but I put myself first. Even before my family, my work, my friends, etc. You know, on, on the basic biological level, we're a cell. And the cell has to take care of itself first. Otherwise, it's not going to survive. So if I put my family's needs first before my own needs, it's not going to be a, a healthy relationship, right? It's that typical sort of scenario uh, in the airplane when those mask drops. Always put the mask on yourself first. So then you can help other people. You have to sort yourself out. And then the rest sort of becomes easier. Yeah. And I think um, another thing that I, I love... Um, I mean, you see, you see it in, in, in a form of almost psychosis with someone like um, Lars Ulrich at Metallica, but you see it with Michael Jordan, with Ronaldo. It's the expectation he puts on the either band members or the team members around them. I think that at, at the highest level, the, like Scottie Pippen is a great basketball player. Yeah, but he wouldn't have been the Scotty Pippen you know if he wasn't playing alongside Michael Jordan. As much as he might think he would, I think yeah. that the expectation that Jordan had on that Bulls team, which well, whichever Bulls team he was in, because I think he brought a lot of players up. They may have hated him for it, but I think if they look look back at it retrospectively and openly, they could say that without Michael Jordan, their career would not. Dennis Rodman's another one. Dennis Rodman probably would have faded out with the Detroit Pistons. Yeah. He hadn't got trade or, or wherever he ended up getting traded from to go to the Bulls, which again was brought on by another absolute extreme winner in, um, what's his fucking name? Phil, Phil Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Because he, I mean, although he changed a lot of how coaching was done he wasn't the he was more of a hippie wasn't he, he was <laughs> he got them meditating and stuff before before games no. um, i mean i could go on forever about it, these people like arsene wenger coming to the premiership completely changed how how english football well to what it is today as much as de depending on who and what team that you support um like he you know, one thing um, with the, you mentioned the Jordan documentary, I, you know, I, I watched it, but I, I don't remember if this was in it. You know, I came off um, a five day sort of course with Tony Robbins. He did this virtual thing just recently in, in January. And one thing he mentioned um, about Jordan is that, you know, like you're talking about how Jordan has this high expectation, not only for himself, but for his, his fellow players. But more important than that is the vision that Jordan has for com competition against um, a higher version of himself, which is really important. So you're seeing it in guys like Ronaldo, Kobe, Jordan, all these high performers in their mind's eye, they're seeing a version of themselves that they're trying to achieve that they haven't hit yet. So when all these other players are competing against, you know, Jordan, it's hard because they think they're competing against Jordan but they don't know that they're actually competing against a higher version of Jordan, which is why they'll never reach that level. Yeah. And that's really important that you set that goal and standard for yourself. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think um, in general, I mean, 
a bit like I said, my my podcast isn't a um, isn't a themed podcast. It's just like I just want to chat shit with with whoever. But if anybody has got this far into listening, it is that in order to become the, the best you doesn't matter if you're a bin man doesn't matter if you're a chef it doesn't matter if you're a banker doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you do a school caretaker it's important to have that i mean i've i've been a um a recipient of recipient recipient of my own my own shortcomings in terms of this in that every day you've got to you have to strive to be that best version that higher version of yourself because if you don't that's when you're not only letting yourself down but you're either your team members your your work colleagues your family you're letting them down and you're letting yourself down as well and not that you're going to have bad days everybody has bad days but the point is that you're aiming for that that higher that higher michael jordan that higher croydon that higher darren yeah, you're bringing everyone up, right? Like, I look at Elon Musk. I remember talking to someone the other day, and he was saying, you know, why is Elon spending all this money on on space travel? You know, we've got um, things on Earth to take care of first before doing that. But, you know, if you sort of look at the principle that we're vulnerable on Earth in the sense we don't have control of the physics of the planet, you know, an asteroid can come or, you know, the sun could die out, which it is. It's going to die out, I think, in 8 billion years or something. Um if we don't want to be a victim of circumstance, the first thing we have to do is conquer another planet, right? We have to make space travel as commercial as it is, you know, air travel, like you see in Star Trek and things like that. And for him to take that vision and actually start, you know, performing at that vision, I think nine times out of 10, he's got to take a lot of heat from the, the critics. I remember seeing a, an interview where, you know, the astronauts who had gone, uh, you know, up in space were actually criticizing him for what he's doing. But for him to have that vision, which is a, a higher vision, you know, uh, beyond his current capability, that actually benefits everyone so that when we start, you know, taking over other planets and then, you know, which might lead and eventually lead to, to galaxies and, you know, universes, things like that, uh, we're going to you know, thank him for having that, that simple vision. And it's kind of like, you know, Ronaldo coming out on that first menu game, you know, he's doing this right now. He's bringing that excitement He's making it possible. He's making it more, you know, efficient finance-wise. And you look at Peter Diamandis, who's involved in many projects, and one of them is to extend the average lifespan 150 years, you know, for the average human. He's not going to live, you know, to to see that, but his work is, you know, hopefully going to progress that forward. It's like that old saying. I think Jay Shetty says it, or you know, plant a tree whose shade that you're never going to sit in, right? Mm -hmm. have that sort of vision for the future and then everyone benefits we're all standing on you know the, the shoulders of giants like we have the light bulb because edison invented it and look what good things came from it right yeah i was gonna say i think i think it was um when uh train travel uh came in because they'd always use trains for like transporting goods but uh, when it became sort of like a, tra a transport thing for humans they were worried that if it went over 30 miles an hour that everybody would explode inside the carts. So there was people boycotting traveling on a train, which some of us do up to like 200 miles an hour these days. Yeah. Imagine what they would have been like if you said, yeah, well in a few years time, you're going to be flying in the sky. It's just, <laughs> it's 
people like to oppose things, don't they? They like to have an opinion. So listen, it's good, you know. We've been going. I was going to say it's good because you need the peanut gallery comments so that you can reevaluate your metrics too, right? Like, yeah, just don't follow it. Follow your own will. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to call time on this one because we've been going for over the hour that I um, requested from you. But um, so your book, people can find that on Amazon. Yeah, it's called All the Best in Your Life. The ebooks on Amazon, and I just uh, published the. the paperback so you can find it there okay and social media wise you don't have instagram yet do you but you're gonna get it this week so i can from i can promote you yes um yes. Uh, twitter anything like that or is it just facebook you know i'm just on facebook um i've only just started promoting stuff so i've got my podcast the focal thought which is yeah. um, on the youtube channel and i'm hoping you're gonna you know come on as a guest after oh, this absolutely yeah nice and I've got my other podcast, which is Stevenson's Mind, which is my version of, um, you know, the Sunday sermon. It's just a 20 minute audio format. And every, you know, two weeks I have a different sort of topic and I just, you know, talk about it and just hope to provide some empowering thoughts. OK, cool. Well, I'm going to nag you about this, the social media side of it, because I, I did the same with my brother and now he's up to over a thousand followers, I think, um, which is which is rich because I like I said, I'm pulling myself away from social media but in terms of your podcast and getting your listeners out i think um it would be quite beneficial um and yeah go get his book nice um what was the book called again all the best in your life all the best in your life so there we go so hopefully you'll see you'll get some sales out of not that this was ever the intention i didn't even know until you'd said that in in the bio that i'm going to put up that that you'd uh, written a book so um but yeah, I encourage anybody, I mean, as, as short of a conversation we've had, like I spent a good three months with, with Croydon and I learned a lot from him, um, including we did a live performance, if you remember. We did an Oasis song. And likewise, I learned a lot from you. And, you know, one thing I do want to mention real quick is this performing at the highest level mindset. You totally have it. And for you to have it at that age when you were 18... I know you got, got it from your dad. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember like you were the fitness guru at camp and we didn't have gym equipment. So I remember you setting up these mats and doing sort of like an informal boxing club. Yeah. And to be able to do that at your age with your mindset, with that confidence, that's amazing. Yeah. And like I said, I think that that time in Wakanda, I, I did four summers there. I, it, it allowed me the space to be the adult that I wanted to be, if you know what I mean. Like if I'd stayed at home and done university, you sort of have to conform to certain things. Whereas I got to be free and express myself in whatever way I felt I, I could. So yeah, but anyway, I'm going to get going. Um, it was great to talk to you, Croydon. We'll do it again, whether it's on one of your platforms or we do it on my platform again, um, because there's so much more we, we could talk about. You know, there's there's all sorts of politics, which you, you studied that for a while, didn't you? Was it was it politics or journalism? It was journalism, but you learn politics through journalism. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts. I mean, I want to get the Canadian thoughts on these pronouns. Uh, Jordan Peterson, we've got loads of stuff we can talk about. So um, we'll schedule it in. You know, it can be uh, a regular thing, if you like. Um, but it's been great to talk to you. Really appreciate your time, mate. Uh, I know you're a busy man. Um, I'm going to catch the the rugby now we're gonna go watch england not perform at the highest level no no and thanks again it's an honor to be on your podcast thanks for having me on thanks man
Right. I hate most people. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Sticking feathers up your butt does not make you a chicken. I drink your milkshake. I hate most people. Obsessive. 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 Inversive. Inversive.